Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Thanks so much for listening. Today's episode of Art in All Its Forms is a little different. As an artist, one of the most important skills you have to learn is how to handle setbacks. Whether it's a job you couldn't book, or a certain artistic work that didn't find the success you wanted it to find, or any one of the numerous ups and downs you experience in your life, you have to be able to pick yourself up off the ground and keep moving forward. And it's really difficult sometimes. <laughs> especially when you've been at it a while and it feels like you aren't making the progress you deserve. I recently experienced an infuriating setback as an actor, and as a way of processing it, I called a bunch of my friends and asked them about their setbacks as artists. They were kind enough to speak with me on the record and for this podcast. This episode is going to be in two parts and in four acts. Part one is being released today, and obviously you're listening to it right now, and part two will be released on Monday. It's a little different than the interview episodes I've done in the past, and so I will be providing a little bit of commentary before each of these conversations. So I'm going to put on my best Ira Glass This American Life impression, and here we go. Act one, Patematos. I recently did a play with a few friends of mine on Zoom and had the chance to work with the new director, her name is Vitoria Vasconcelos, and she is from Brazil, and she graduated from the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts. The two of us ran in similar circles throughout our time at USC, but I hadn't met her until recently. She was really wonderful to work with on the play, and when I reached out online asking for friends to tell me their stories, she told me about a serious injury she had and how it affected her artistic trajectory. She spoke with me on Zoom from Brazil. I'm really interested to hear about this injury that you had. So, so sort of tell me this, this story. Set the scene for me. Well, I can definitely, I can go ahead and tell you that this is like the truly, truly crazy thing that happened in my life so far. So what happened was um, in 2018, yeah, I was going from sophomore to junior year and uh and the the first semester I was in Australia studying abroad my first it, it was actually my first semester as a film student because I had just gotten into SCA and I was studying in the film school and the University of Melbourne and it was a super transformative semester for me I made my first short film I acted in other people's films in Australia made a bunch of film friends learned so much about the kind of filmmaker that I wanted to be and the kind of movies that I wanted to make but it was a really tough semester, a lot, lot of work. My friends were all gone for the summer. I was feeling super lonely. So I wrote this short film based on a lot of things that I learned in Australia. And I, and I wrote a short film and I reached out to my friend Evan about it. And, uh, and I asked him if he wanted to direct it and I would just act. And, um, and then he's like, yeah, let's do it. So we started like this gorilla thing, reached out to a lot of actor friends. It was a low key project. And then, um, but it was really kind of like, it was giving me so much joy and hope during the summer that was already kind of sad because nobody was around and it was so hot too. Yeah. LA, South Central in the summer is, is really hot and dry it's too. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm from Brazil. 
I mean, when I say things are hot, it means that they are. So I reached out to Evan and we started working on this with a bunch of other friends. And we started shooting it. And on the second day, there was a scene. And this was right, this was two blocks. Do you know Taco Bell um, by USC? The one uh, with smart, the close to smart and final. Oh, on the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Right, right. I know that. So, is. um, two blocks, uh, two blocks from from that place. Like it's literally there, like in the streets that our friend of our a friend of ours who was in uh, helping out with the movie lived there. And there was a scene that that was in the script, and my my character was running away from some paparazzi, and she grabbed a bike and biked off a driveway to the street, and the people were were like running after her with cameras and things. <laughs> okay, I can see that you can tell. I'm already coming. like, oh my god, oh no. Okay, but continue. <laughs> And uh, and we had done this several times. Uh, like it was just me grabbing a bike, biking from the driveway to the street, and then um, and the thing was that people were after me. The actors after me, pretending to be paparazzi and like newspaper people, they were yelling. They were yelling after me. So so it was um, it was not like a quiet scene. A, a lot of times I would bike to the street and a car would come because also that street is super like low key. Like it's really quiet. It's residential, so nobody's running. It's not fig, you know. I was also going to say that, you know, like if this was a very high budget film, you could close off the street to do this, this bit. But, you know, obviously you guys don't have the money to close off, you know, a residential street in, in L.A. Right. This was like so low key and like, like, you know, so gorilla. I think this was maybe. Yeah, this was the second film that. I, mm, yeah, the second film that I had written, I think it was really like early on. Yeah, and but it was very loud, so a lot of times I would bike, and then I would see a car coming, and then the car would notice me because of the noise, and then I would just turn the bike around, and and then I remember um, Evan saying, "Oh, we're let's do like one more, like like let's just do it again," and so we did this, but this time there was a car coming, and he didn't see me at all, and I remember like stopping my bike and looking at the car, waiting for him to stop because there was still some distance, it wasn't like immediate like, um, but then I I don't know if he was on his phone or he just wasn't oh. looking so he just completely hit me and only after hitting me, he stopped he like stopped the car so you could hear like the brake sound and the and I mean, this that I'm gonna say now is according to the people that are there because I, I don't, I don't know exactly, but what Evan and, and uh, people on set said was that I just flew like high from the ground and then I fell like butt first. And I, that I remember just being in the sort of like the, the road, like really, really hot. And I was just wearing like a shirt and, um, and shorts, like I was not very protected. And I remember being on the grass, trying to stand up and Evan pinning me, telling me not to move. And I was just trying to stand up. I wasn't really understanding what was happening. And I remember someone coming and looking at me and just being like, oh, shit, like just looking at me and like shaking their heads and like and then looking at my leg and I couldn't see like I, they were pinning me. So I couldn't like even peek at it. And then I remember someone saying something about a bone and I was like, you can see my bone. Lord. Later, Evan told me that he thought that I had died. He, alongside with a lot of people there, they thought that when the car hit me, the thing was so big that they thought that I had died right there. Oh, and I had a history, I still do, of concussions. So I've had like 
four concussions in the past like six years so i've had lots of concussions and one of them um i couldn't like read for a month and so sometimes i have like little side effects from these concussions and none of them are my fault i always get hit by things (laughs) i never you know do crazy i should (laughs) clarify this but um the ambulance came and they gave me like lots of morphine and i got surgery like the day of and when I stopped being like high on morphine, I called my parents who are both doctors. My dad is actually a surgeon. He's an orthopedic surgeon that does exactly that. Um, and they flew and took them like, take them like two days to come from Brazil to the US normally. So they came after the surgery, they arrived. And I mean, the, what happened to the leg was that, um, it, it broke next to my foot and the bone was sticking out. And, but because they did, they put like a, like a titanium thing on my leg, but they hammered it in from my knee. So in a way, my entire, even though only the two bones broke of my leg, but because they had to do it like that, they broke all of my lower leg because they had to break my knee. Oh God, they had had to injure you further so as to to fix it properly. Thankfully, nothing happened to my head, which was really the, um, the good thing. So tell me about your recovery. It was really tough. It was definitely, I think, the hardest moment of my life. There was a lot of physical pain involved, obviously. It's a, like, it's a broken leg. And, like, um, I've broken lots of bones before, um, but this was completely different. So there is, like, the physical pain that you would expect. But what was truly painful was um, the idea that I would not be able to be the same person that I was before. Because um, I, I grew up with these doctor friends of my dad's. And so when I arrived back in Brazil and, and I all of them saw me and examined me and I had to get a second surgery done because it was a mistake made in my first surgery and I couldn't move my toes so halfway through my recovery process I had to stop and start over because the, my the, I had to get a new surgery um and anyways all these like complications happened but the painful thing was the idea that nobody could tell me for sure if I could walk again if I was going to walk again without limping if I was um, going to be able to walk long distances, if I was going to be able to like do essentially everything that I did before. I left Brazil when I was, I had just turned 17 and I went to Boston and then Maine and then California and Australia. So I started, I left home when I was 17 and I have been doing everything on my own, living in different places, kind of like nomadically from place to place. So I've been super independent um, and I rely on my body for that. <laughs> So the idea that all this that I had built could just go away and I would have to be like impaired for my whole life because of this one thing, single thing it was really tough because I felt really betrayed. I had just found out that movies are kind of the reason why I'm alive and I was having a really bad summer and the one thing that I was doing that brought me joy, I wasn't, I wasn't hurting anybody. I was just having fun. It's the reason why. And I used to bike all the time and I kept asking myself, why could I not have been hit when I was just biking at USC? Because I do it all the time. Why did it have to be when I was making a movie? Oh, wow. That's so interesting. And there were so many opportunities for someone to hit me with a car, but why did it have to be during the making of a movie that I was acting in it, that I wrote because I wanted to play this part. That's so interesting that that that's the the psychological thing that hurt. It wasn't that it wasn't the accident alone. It was the fact that the accident happened while you did something that you loved. That was kind of tough. That's a really interesting connection. Wow. 
the the intense part of the recovery process lasted a semester when I was away from USC and I was here in Brazil um, learning how to walk again and having I did physical therapy from the day after the surgery for most of this six month period I was doing it every day it was it was really a matter when I got told by everybody that nobody could tell me oh it's gonna be fine just do your physical therapy in a couple of months you're gonna be off this wheelchair you're gonna be walking again when I was told by everyone this then the moment that I was like absolutely not that is not an option it's that there is not a chance that I will limp that I I mean it's it, this would like it's something detrimental to my life and it would jeopardize all the things that I work for. There is not a chance. I'm not going to be the same when this recovery process is over. I'm going to be better. So um, I did physical therapy every day when the, you know, the doctor like advice like, oh, twice a week. I did it every day. Um, I was off the wheelchair uh, like a month before the pre predicted and then I was on crutches and then I was on a walker and I moved a lot faster but during the six months that I couldn't even walk properly I was in two movies um, and <laughs> I'll, I was just I'll show you out. filmmaking you're not gonna get rid of me that easily no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just couldn't, but, but it was really, uh, psychological is really tough because I felt prosecuted by the world. Like, how is it that this one thing that I know that I can do, I can't, I, I'm going to get hit by a car while doing it? Like, that's unfair. It's kind of like in Harry Potter, like the, the, the wand chooses a wizard situation. You know, there's a famous Brazilian actor who says, that her advice to young actors is don't do it, don't do it, find anything else. If you can't do anything else and you love that thing, then do it. But if you really, really, really cannot stay away, then come back. The whole process of recovery from, like, medically speaking, took two years because I was not allowed to do a lot of things. Like, I couldn't jump and I couldn't run and I couldn't do any impact things for two years. And then after that, I was released. Last year, I was released from everything and I could just do whatever. Congrats. Yes, thank you. So you made a short film based on this. And then how would you say like just the the psychological impact of all of this? Has it affected your work at all? Do you feel that there's something that's different about the way that you look at the world? Absolutely. I think that um, I, I after the accident, I started seeing all art as just a transformation of pain. And I started believing very strongly that the one thing that, that unites everybody is not money, is not desire for happiness, is just pain. It's the one thing that everyone feels in different ways, different times of their lives, but it's something that everybody understands more than anything that could be considered universal. I think pain is the most universal thing. And during my recovery, when I was like, you know, during the many trips to the hospital or surgeries or things, my aunt um, used to tell me, that the Greeks had this concept for pain called pathematos, and it's the idea that pain and knowledge are so uh, connected that you can't have one without the other. And if you have one, it will lead to the other. So if you're feeling pain, it will lead to knowledge. And if you just gain knowledge, it will lead to pain. Um, so it was this idea and sort of like this lifestyle, really, um, and that kind of stuck with me, that idea that, you know, you can't have one without the other. And if you're having one, the other will come um, sometime. For months, I avoided writing this short film because I didn't want to. I was struggling a lot with PTSD this semester that I was back at USC. 
after the physical recovery, um, I was struggling a lot with it and I didn't know what it was. And um, it was so difficult and complicated to sort of in Brazil, mental health um, is, is a really big taboo still. Like people avoid at all costs kind of going to the therapist and, and in the U.S. is a lot more accepted. But in Brazil, it never really occurred to me to to look for one. And when I did look for help in the U.S., I was already kind of going through the post-traumatic stress that that I hadn't gone through when I was here in Brazil. So it was really, like, strange and difficult to navigate that. So I avoided writing. So I didn't want to write about it. I thought it was going to be detrimental. And it came to a point where I just couldn't, like, help myself and in one night, I just wrote the script of Pate Matos, and it's a story. It's not my story. Um, in, like, it's not like biographical per se, but it's a story about a girl who's dealing with grief. And it's essentially about the idea that in one day, a normal day in our lives, our fight against trauma is kind of like colonization in a way. It comes from all sides, kind of blitzkrieg sort of situation. You don't know how to, if you don't acknowledge that you have trauma, you don't, if you're sort of like, if you're alone in this, you don't know how to deal with it. You don't know where it comes from. It can come from anywhere. It can be triggered by anything. And there you are, just one person suffering, trying to get back to your life and fighting this thing that's in your mind. So it's this internal conflict, internal fight. And that's what Pate Matos, the movie is called Pate Matos. And the, Pate Matos, that's what it's about. It's about, like, this idea that um, trauma is the ultimate killer. And it is. Um, and that's, like, the belief that I have. And that's how this movie came to be. And we actually just finished the movie last December um, after lots and lots of work. And we now have it. And I'm super proud of it. That's good to hear that something came out of all of that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you when you talk about this concept, which I'm still just processing, this like connection between pain and knowledge. I, I feel like most people perceive pain as being a very dark concept. And so we tend to ignore the things that we feel are a little bit darker. We investigate them just a little bit less. Just to even have it like there in in your day or in your mind is, is tough enough. And so you just try to avoid it as opposed to, and, I, and it's an artist's job as opposed to doing that to go in and be like, oh, no, 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 I want to investigate that. My process, at least sometimes when I'm looking at a script, is to to sort of get down to the nitty gritty of, okay, what this particular character is feeling or what the situation is. And then you don't have to find a perfect substitute, but a, a close substitute in your own life where you can at least find the door in to that particular feeling. So you can say, okay, well, this, this character is feeling jealous for these reasons. When have I felt jealous for other reasons? Just so that you can get grounded in, oh, that's what the jealousy is like again. And then, then you can apply it to this different situation and, and you're good to go. And so in, in this same way, I think that weirdly enough, even though it's, it's a really traumatic event and it's extremely painful, that it provides for you a reference point from which you can then take that and apply it to other situations in a way that's maybe more real than for other people who just want to sort of imagine pain at that level but don't have that direct reference point in their life whoever we are and whoever characters are at the moment that we're portraying them are a result of all the traumas that they have lived and endured. And that informs how they relate to people. That informs, especially um, female characters, um, how they relate to men. 
like all these like little things like so much in life and so much of the way that we behave and act around other people and introduce ourselves and just live are just a consequence of the pain that we have felt even when we're not sure of it it took me getting hit by a car to know that um two things one that not even a car could stop me from making movies and acting there's nothing that can really stop us and the other thing is that it took me all this process to realize the importance of pain and storytelling and pain in art and how that is so present so i hope that you know at least like this that all this that that we're talking and and everything helps people realize it like sooner than i did and hopefully use that in the things that they're making thanks so much to vic for talking with me this connection between art and pain knowledge and pain is something that uh, i will definitely discuss at the end of the series uh, but for now let's move forward all right act two lincoln park I first met Lauren Dare in an acting class. It was actually the first acting class I ever took in Los Angeles. She was another student in that class. I was in that class for about three years and then left. And as happens, you know, Lauren and I, we fell out of touch, but followed each other on social media and whatnot. I knew that Lauren was also a musician. She went to Berklee College of Music in Boston and then to USC for her master's. I ran into her very briefly on campus one time and it was just another wonderful reminder of how small my artistic world really is, even when I don't get the chance to interact with everyone on a regular basis. I spoke to Lauren about a songwriting competition that she entered, the expectations of how her life could have changed forever, and an unexpected tragedy. So tell me about this. You said a Linkin Park story, and I was like, I want to know what, what this story is. What's going on here? So it's, it's, it's really crazy and it's, it's still something that's taken me time to process and kind of had the like, well, why did this happen? So the full story is I entered this songwriting competition that I saw on Facebook and I'm a songwriter and, you know, I write for other artists. I write for myself or my artist project. Um, and I saw this songwriting competition on Facebook and I was like, okay, I'll enter. Like <laughs> I enter everything I find, right. um, the struggle of <laughs> hoping one will pull through. And I entered and I didn't really think anything of it. It wasn't a huge contest. It was, you know, nothing I'd heard of what, before. What were the parameters of it exactly? So it was, a, it was a monthly music contest. So they had 12 winners essentially. And each month was a different theme. So one month was rap. One month was rock. One month was electronic. And I had just squeezed in right before the last month, which was wild card, so, which was essentially just submit whatever. So I submitted this song, uh, one of my personal favorites um, called Monster. And I sent it in. Didn't think anything of it. And I get this email about two months later that's like, hey, congratulations, you're in the, you're in the top three for this, for this um, contest. We'll let you know in a few hours which place you got. And then I'm looking at, they sent the prizes through, and like third prize was like Linkin Park merch. Okay. And then, you know, the second prize was like more Linkin Park merch. Okay. And then the first prize was like a new blue microphone and blue headphones and okay, yeah. a new keyboard and a computer and all this stuff. And I was like, cool. So I'm going to get some Linkin Park merch. Right. So I get this email and it's like, congrats, you won. You know, and they, um, it was at this um, company, um, which has now been rebranded and is part of um, Roland. Okay. Um, and they flew out to LA. We filmed a video 
And they were like, so what we're doing is we're taking each of the 12 monthly winners and there's like a grand prize. And the grand prize is you're going to go in the studio and record a song with Linkin Park. Oh my God. And I'm like, <laughs> cool. Like, like, wow, this Linkin little... Park merch has now, you know, <laughs> been upgraded to Linkin Park. And like the little emo child in me that like listened to Hybrid Theory on repeat, it's like, oh, huh, cool. While I like internally freak out. <laughs> Um, so a few months go by and they call me on Skype and they're like, you know, if you had to do anything differently, what would you do? And I was like, I don't know. Like I work harder, I guess. And they're like, well, congrats. You won. Whoa. You won this grand prize. You're going to go in the studio. You're going to work with Lincoln Park. And I lost it. Like there was a video on YouTube. They filmed the whole thing. They put it up. Um, and they're like, we're going to announce it on Wednesday. And I was like, fantastic. Cool. Sounds great. And they're like, your life is going to change forever. Like, like I hope you know, like, no. your life is going to change. So Wednesday comes around. The band posts it. And they're like, you know, congratulations. We'll see you in the studio. Um, it got 2 million views on Facebook. It was this whole big thing. Um, you know, news sites everywhere were picking it up. Um, and that was announced Wednesday at 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. Thursday at 9 a.m., um, Chester Bennington killed himself. That's right. And it was a 24-hour turnaround. And wow. there was this moment of, first of all, shock and devastation just because, you know, who he was, what he meant to the music community, um, you know, six kids that don't have a dad anymore, um, you know, just this tremendous loss. And then I also had, like, the really kind of selfish thought I hate I hate to say it but just like and there it went this was my big break this was what was going to change everything and it's gone this is back in 2017 that's right yeah well I hadn't even thought about that that's yeah I mean I can and I can see it from from all sides of it you know from from the band side of it obviously their band member is gone and it, of course an important person such an important person, the lead vocalist of Lincoln Park. So, yeah. you know, when that person's gone, it's kind of like, what do you do? And then, of course, for you, on your side of things, that was also a real moment in your career, or supposed to be, and couldn't happen anymore. And no, and I, and I felt really, really guilty about ever having that thought. Like, I, 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 I had that moment of like, well, why am I even thinking this? Like, that's so selfish. But... I also know that I'm human and I know that there can be multiple feelings that happen at the same time. You know, for me, I'm like, this is more than a contest. This is, you know, so much bigger than that. Um, but it was still hard professionally because I was like, wow, this, this was it. Like I had, I had <laughs> these 24 hours of like, wow, everything's going to change. Like this is, this is it. And then it just felt like it was like the rug was pulled out underneath you. And I'd never been in such a big media spread because the tweet about me winning was the last thing posted on their social media. Oh. So I started getting people who were flooding my inbox, who were asking me questions that I didn't have answers to. And Right. Um, it's like, well, what do you do? So obviously then someone must contact you and say that this is not happening or this was sort of evident based on the circumstances? So, so I call the guy that's, you know, at the, at the company and I'm like, hey, first of all, is this true? You know, like I found out via Twitter and he's like, no, it's, you know, it's, it's true. I'm going to, I'll get back to you. And, you know, he got back to me and he was like, we're going to have to put this on pause. And I was like, 
don't even worry about that. Like, <laughs> don't, do not worry about that. That is the least important thing right now. And he's like, you know, we'll keep in touch. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, four or five months go by and he reaches out and he's like, hey, um, first of all, the band wants to invite you to the tribute show at the Hollywood Bowl, which is very sweet and not, you know, not necessary at all. Um, and he said, Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park still wants to do the session. Like he wants to move forward and he wants to, he wants to, he wants to do this with you. And he's like, I even asked him, I was like, you know, you can do lunch instead. <laughs> like you don't have to go in the studio. And he said he wanted to. And so we ended up going in the studio, um, Mike Shinoda, Brad Delson. Um, and we went to Red Bull Studios and we, I had kind of started writing the song right after Chester passed, just kind of about my feelings about it. And you know, looking at the mental health side of things. And, um, I brought it to the guys and said, Hey, I understand if this is like way too much, but, um, I'd really love to, to work on this with you. And we wrote this song called every little light and it turned out great. It's my most dream song to date. Um, and it was mm -hmm. kind of that thing of like, I know I thought this was supposed to go a different way. Like I, like I know this is supposed to, it was a major setback in my mind, but ultimately it opened the door for something else. You know, it, it, I don't know what the reason is or how, why these things happen, but there was something bigger that, that came from it. So tell me about that song then. Did it, end, it, was, did it just end up being a demo or just a, a track that you had or did it end up going it's out? out. It's, it's out and it's everywhere. Um, you can stream it now. And like, and you know, it's one of those things where I still keep in touch with Mike to this day and, you know, we... we we keep a track of each other, but, um, well, it's very nice to hear that they have, uh, that you have a relationship with them and that they were kind enough to, to still honor the session and, and to do it when they didn't have to. I think that's really remarkable. They did not have to, they get every out. Like, I mean, I, I, my feelings would not have been hurt. I, you know, like I, again, it's bigger than that. Like it is bigger than a songwriting competition. It's, um, this icon, you know, this icon that we all, I don't know about you, but I was an emo kid at heart. So like, it was a huge part of my childhood. It was one of the reasons I got into rock music and like fell in love with music. Uh, okay. So tell me about like the, the aftermath of that. So obviously you record this, this song with Linkin Park and it's out. And so in some ways it's, it's a, it's a dream fulfilled, a dream realized, certainly not in the way that you had expected it. I don't think it's in the way they expected it or wanted it to happen, obviously. And it's filled with this other, this like undercurrent and this emotion of something different of like the sadness and this, this tragedy. Nonetheless, there's a song and there's music out of it and that's something beautiful. And then tell me about how you then sort of go on with, with your life and then you have to obviously move forward. So what, what happens then? How does that feel? It's hard because the song's great. This, you know, it, it had a huge impact, tons of press pickup, you know, people were covering it left and right. And then I release my, you know, I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work on more music. Like I got to, I got to have a good follow-up for this because like now I have the eyes, now I have to do it on my own. You know, <laughs> like people cared because Linkin Park was involved, but now I got to make them care about what I have to say. And, you know, I really, I've released several singles since then and it's hard because it doesn't have the same impact sometimes and you have to work a lot harder. Like it was this... It was that idea of like, oh, it's all going to be made now. I'm going to have this built-in fan base. And like, yes, I did get fans from that who love my music and stay for my music. But it was like, I did my first release after. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, dang, I'm going to have to go 
pitch to some blogs and like, I'm going to have to really like, you know, drive this up because there's this, this, there's this expectation that once you get there, you don't have to work anymore. And I was like, it's going to take care of itself. And I was like, oh no, I actually have to work harder, like to work harder than ever. So that's 2017. And then obviously you release some new singles and some new material. And how do you feel about, if you don't mind me asking, how do you feel about the trajectory of obviously this last year has been a very different experience uh, because of COVID. But how do you feel about that growth? You know, I think it, I, I was also very much at a point at the very end of 2019 where my mental health was not great. Like I was working a ton. I was constantly pushing myself. I was busier than I've ever been. I was in writing sessions here and meeting with record labels and doing all this stuff. But I was so burnt out and like so like not not taking care of myself. Like I, I, there was one day where I think I, I counted, I cried like 15 times and I put, and I had an A&R meeting. I was meeting with the head of APG and I pulled myself together. I went in, I did my pitch. I killed it. And I walked out and I cried again. Um, <sighs> and so I really like, you know, I took 2020 as a year of just like grounding myself, um, really rediscovering why I'm doing this. Like, why am I doing music? Um, and kind of took a break. Like I released stuff. I released a couple singles, but like, I really took like the last six months of just like, I'm going to sit and rediscover why I love music and make it less of a job and make it something that's fun and like something I love to do again. So now I'm very much back in working headspace, like, you know, doing writing sessions several days a week, working on the next round of releases and trying to keep it less about the numbers, less like, oh, you have to get this many listens in your first week or oh, well, if you don't get a Spotify playlist, then it's the end of the world. And just making it about the music. And like at the end of the day, you know, I have a day job. Like <laughs> I have to do it for fun. Yeah, tell me about your day job a little bit. So tell me about that as well. So then there's the other side of it where I work in the music industry. Um, I work at Universal. Um, I'm a, I can't say too much because, you know, NDAs. But yeah. um, I'm a release support manager. So I help put releases out into the world, which is great and fun. Um, and it leaves me a lot of creative room to do my music. Like, I'm not too drained at the end of the day, and I can go hop into a session right after work or do a podcast and, um, <laughs> you know, kind of still be alive, <laughs> for lack of better words. This job requires a lot of persistence, whether it's music, whether it's acting. It requires a lot of, I think, also just mental resilience to be able to do it day in and day out. And to handle these highs and lows. I don't know if that's true in other industries so much where you can really be at the peak of something huge or right on the precipice of one of the biggest moments of your life and then watch it not come crashing down per se, but watch that sort of diminish to the point where you you feel like maybe that it's almost a failure and that it didn't really get you anywhere. And then you have the other side of people who don't think what you're doing is serious <laughs> or, they, or they don't get it. Like I've had people, um, I won't say who it was, um, but someone very close to me that I went to Berkeley College of Music for my undergrad, which is one of the top music schools. And they were like, yeah, I haven't heard of it, blah, blah, blah. And I remember getting this call because they had seen Megan Trainer on Good Morning America. And they were like, did you know Megan Trainer went to Berkeley? And I was like, yes, yes, I did. 
but suddenly now it's this cool thing. Like now it's a cool school because like a pop icon went there. And so like there's, you always have to prove yourself. You have to prove what you're doing is worthwhile. You have to prove that it's a real career, <laughs> you know? And so there's like that layer because it's not like you're doing math or science. You're doing an art and that's automatically not taken as seriously. And then when you're faced with rejection, it's like, well, you should go get a real job. <laughs> like people don't understand that it's, it's, um, there's so many things you have to juggle when being a creative like your own personal demons of trying to be a creative, but then the outside world on top of that. And a special thanks to Lauren Dare for talking to me as well. Act three and act four will be coming on Monday. Someone talks with me about my story, which isn't unique or original, but just a regular day in the life of an actor. And part four is with a very good friend of mine who uh, doesn't book the job he thought would be his dream job, only to go on and do bigger and better things. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms, the podcast and the newsletter, at artinallitsforms.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns, uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's A-I-A-I-F pod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.